Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by Mercy Ascot. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, and today I'm talking to Mr. Rupesh Puna about painful feet. Rupesh graduated from the New Zealand Orthopaedic Surgical Training Program in 2015. He has recently returned from two years of fellowship training in Canada and now has a practice solely dedicated to disorders of the foot and ankle. He works publicly at Auckland City Hospital and in private at Mercy Ascot. Welcome, Rupesh. Thank you. So today we're talking about feet, and we'll discuss foot pain throughout the lifespan. We'll use cases to highlight common conditions and discuss clinical presentations, investigations, and management. So starting with case one, Rupesh. Master L is a 12-year-old boy. He loves sport. He plays cricket, soccer, and PlayStation. He plays at a rep level for both of his sports and is training three to five times a week all year round. For the last year or so, he's had pain in his feet. His parents keep buying him new boots and shoes, but the pain continues. It has been suggested by the chap at the shoe shop that he stops playing sport, and this has prompted his visit today. So what are the pertinent questions we need to ask from Master L and his parents? Well, I mean, first of all, you'd want to know more about the pain, in particular the location, and um, specifically what kinds of activities bring on the pain. And you have to be quite um, specific and really prompt, um, you know, kids for questions because they they don't really volunteer information like older people. So um, those are the first things that I'd want to know, and in particular, um, what makes it better. Um, I mean, um, some kids may also have pain on one side versus both. That would be another important thing. Um, and in particular, whether the kid or the young child's been growing frequently, uh, you know, what his growth's been like, because it may be that he really has grown quite a lot recently. We're going to need to examine Master L. What is it that we examine and what are we looking for specifically? Um, when I'm examining someone, I always want to look at the appearance of the foot. So, um, a lot of kids have flat feet, I've found, so that's important to, to look at. Um, and in particular, looking for swelling um, and their gait. Often, um, the way they walk um, will tell you in particular where their pain is. Um, sometimes, um, you sure, well, I always tend to look at their shoes as well, um, to look at particular kinds of wear. Um, and, and as I said, with kids, it, it's a fairly simple examination. You, you if you push on the sore spot, they'll generally let you know. Um, there may be some swelling around um, the area that's uncomfortable. So, um, I mean, it's a fairly simple examination with kids. It's nothing too um, dramatic, to be honest. But those are the things that I'd be looking at. So we're starting to wonder about Sever's disease in this boy. Which children are most affected by this? And are there any risk factors such as a raised BMI or a family history that we need to consider? Um, not, not particularly. I think boys are more, uh, more commonly affected than girls. We're not really sure why that is, but I suspect um, in general boys are probably more active. As I said, um, 60% of the time Sever's disease is bilateral, so um, if the pain's on both sides, it's probably more likely to be Sever's disease, and in particular... Um, we're thinking about the activities if they involve a lot of running, jumping um, types of activities, then um, that's also another risk factor. So those are, are probably um, the most common children who get them. Um, kids who are growing reasonably quickly um, also. So, yeah. 
So what's the pathophysiology of this condition, Rupesh? Uh, well, we don't really know. I guess it's commonly called attraction apophysitis. So it's, it's related to the skeletally immature calcaneal apophysis. Um, and the idea is that with running and jumping, you're putting a lot of stress on that calcaneal apophysis. And that's why when the um, secondary growth center closes, you know, essentially the pain, pain goes away because um, there's, that center is no longer there. So it, it really is probably better known as attraction apophysitis. Um, we, we probably, well, obviously myself, um, I, I don't see a lot of kids, but, you know, we, we see um, this kind of condition in other parts of the body, such as Osgood Schlatter's disease in the knee. Um, that, that's probably the most common area um, that orthopedic surgeons see. Um, but, yeah, as I said, in general, it's really a, a disease of the skeletally immature, and, and once kids reach their skeletal maturity, their, their pain essentially goes. So are there any management options that we can discuss with this family, and if so, how effective are they? Um, well, in, in general, it's a bit of a, it's a difficult problem to manage. Um, first thing I would like to emphasize, is I think it's important that all kids get an x-ray. It, it's not just a clinical diagnosis, or sorry, it is a clinical diagnosis, but it is important to get x-rays for this condition. 5% of the time, it can be something else, and that can be anything from a calcaneal stress fracture to a unicameral bone cyst or a non-ossifying fibroma. So I think it is important that if you're clinically suspecting Severs disease that a patient, a child should get an X-ray. Um, in terms of management, um, it's fairly simple. I mean, there's been a lot of um, studies that have looked at various things. Um, treatment modalities would include um, something such as a heel cup or an orthotic. Um, various stretching exercises aimed at gastroc calf stretching, and some people just say, "Well, let's just see and leave it alone and see what happens." Um, Really, um, if you look at the literature, um, there's not a lot of difference in the long-term outcomes of all of those. I think the key, the key in treating this is that it is really that patients or kids have to stop what they're doing, and that's difficult. At difficult to emphasise in kids at a young age because most of them want to just be out and playing with their mates. So um, I, I um, would, knowing from a personal level, my son having it, we we've given him a gel cup and that seems to have done the trick. Um, it's been going on for three or four months, but yeah, but the key is really that you have to emphasize that they need to stop activities that bring on the symptoms. So it's easier said than done. Um, yes, although in the position we are in New Zealand in lockdown, I was thinking lots of this <laughs> is probably going to go away at the moment. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's interesting. Um, recently I, I did I'd read a study that looked at um, that three groups um, basically neglected, benign neglect, um, a heel cut and the calf stretching. And in essence, um, they all improved. Um, there wasn't a lot of difference in, in the outcomes long-term. When I say long-term, I mean six months. Um, so, I mean, at the end of the day, um, I think probably this, the best thing is for them to, to try and limit and stop the activities that bring on their symptoms. And whether you do some calf stretching or wear an orthotic, I'm not entirely certain it's going to make a big difference, to be honest. And the other thing is compliance with kids because, you know, for anything like my son, they don't really want to wear anything in their shoes, to be honest. And in summer, it's hard to even get shoes on my kid. Mm. Uh, so, yeah. Perfect. So we've talked about the fact, the prognosis, and it's really just waiting until they finish growing. Well it, well, it can be. It's a bit of a, a 
it can be quite um, difficult to predict how long. I mean, you, when you're typically training and you read in books and people say three to six months, well, that's not the experience that, that I had and other people have mentioned. It, it really can persist for a long period of time. And, and, and I think um, that's the... That's, I think that's another issue why we should be getting x-rays on these kids because we need to make sure it's not anything else more serious. Um, and also then if we're happy, then um, yeah, it's just, it, it really is, it can take months to years more than anything else. Um, and, and in general, um, it does resolve, um, but it, it can be longer than we anticipate. So moving on now to our next case, Miss C is a lawyer for a big city law firm. Appearance is important to her. She likes to power dress. Part of her daily outfit is a high, narrow stiletto heel. Over the last months, she's had four foot pain. She secretly wishes she could wear trainers to work. She can't wait to remove her shoes at the end of the day. Tell us about Miss C. Um, well, it, obviously, that, that sort of history is fairly common um, for um, someone with potentially having uh, an issue with a Morton's neuroma. Um, that, that's often the typical history that, that um, patients give me um, with a condition like, like that, um, particularly with um, narrow shoes and, and a feeling of a sense of such relief when they take off their shoes. Um, it's a fairly common, common symptom. So does she need to be imaged? Just uh, well, that's an interesting one. I, I personally do image everyone. The reason I image everyone, um, well, I, I get an x-ray and I don't necessarily um, get any other investigations um, such as an ultrasound or an MRI scan. Um, the, the reason being is, is I get an x-ray because um, it's important to rule out other differentials of forefoot pain. And the, the list is, is actually quite um, short. If you look at forefoot pain, there are only about four or five things um, that can cause um, pain in the forefoot, and um, that they may be, um, you know, a metatarsal stress fracture, Freiburg's, um, which we see. Um, some people have um, clawing of the toe and what, what I call plantar plate insufficiency. That that's an overlap with what I call synovitis. Um, and of course, um, some patients have forefoot pain because they have an overly long metatarsal. Um, that's another, and, and and really those four or five cause of forefoot pain, uh, I mean, that, that's, that's all that we should be thinking about when we think of forefoot pain. I get an x-ray to rule out the other, those things more than the Morton's neuroma because the Morton's neuroma really is a clinical diagnosis. It's a, if you examine someone with a good Morton's neuroma, they actually have very good clinical signs um, and, um, you know, a, a positive modus click and um, pain in the either the third or fourth web space um, or the second or third web space less commonly. Um, but really, it, it's a clinical diagnosis, Morton's neuroma. I, don't, I get an X-ray to rule out the other conditions, and I very rarely get an ultrasound or MRI, and that's on patients that I've operated on. That's been well, um, that's been well shown in the literature now as well, in the foot, you know, in the foot and ankle world. Um, I really only get an MRI if I think there's something else going on. Perfect. So what are the treatment options for her? Um, well, there's a number of treatment options. Obviously, it depends if uh, if she wants, you know, an operation or or not really. Because I think it, my, my experience with the operation has been very good. Um, if she if 
if patients don't want an operation, then they, they can either wear wide, wide shoes um, because generally shoes are what bring on their symptoms. Um, I haven't really tried any custom orthotics or metatarsal pads, but um, other treatment options include injections. Now, I'm uncomfortable doing them myself. Um, I tend to send them to an interventional radiologist who can get an ultrasound machine out and put it right, you know, put, put it right where the spot is. Um, there's a lot of debate as to what um, is most effective. There's now um, evidence that local anaesthetic is, and steroid is no better than just local anaesthetic alone, um, which I'm not entirely certain as to whether that's true or whether we should be um, concluding too much from that. Um, there's some newer people injecting alcohol into the nerves um, to try and kill off the nerve and the pain. Um, but um, as I said, um, for me, I, I found the operation very reliable. And if they don't want an operation, I send them off for an ultrasound-guided corticosteroid and local anesthetic injection. And about 30% of the time, I, I think they probably resolve without coming back. Um, if they're a smaller one, then probably more likely to resolve. But the bigger ones, you know, once they get to, I think, about five mils, I, I think those ones don't do very well with injections. I, I think they might get a little bit of relief and then come back. And as I said, I found the operation very, very um, reliable, which is why if patients you know, want the most reliable option, I suggest that it's probably an, op an operation. And thinking surgery, yeah. how much time would they need off work? Because that's always a big consideration for people. No, so um, it depends what they do. So if they're doing a desk job and they can put their foot up, you know, I'm happy for them to go back at 48 hours. Um, I, I just use um, a dissolving um, stitch. So um, if they're doing a more physical job, then it can be anywhere between three and six weeks, to be honest. But, I, I mean, I, I've had patients come back at two weeks wearing shoes, um, you know, walking around in it. And um, I think it probably relates a little bit to um, the surgical technique. One of the um, things that I was taught when I was away is that, um, is that a lot of patients... Um, end up with hematomas because when you're, I mean, when you're excising a, a neuroma, you're essentially cutting out the nerve which runs close to the digital artery. And if you're accidentally praying the artery when you're cutting, which is more common than you think, um, then those patients probably end up with a hematoma. It takes them much longer to, to get over the operation. But, um, you know, now I sort of do it almost without the tourniquet. So you take care of your your, um, your artery at the same time. Um, so I think that's an important surgical point. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think um, if you're careful, most people can get back pretty quickly, to be honest. Um, and, you know, I would anticipate three weeks off work um, if you're doing a physical job. Moving now on to our next case, Mrs S is a 60-year-old grandmother. She has recently moved to house and is now more active. She has been enjoying daily barefoot beach walks for the last month. Today, she hobbles into your consultation room. She is distressed with her foot pain. What more do we need to know from Mrs. S to ascertain the problem here? Um, well, first of all, I mean, obviously, taking a good history. Um, in particular, I'd like to know where the pain is um, and, and when it comes on, um, what in particular makes it better, um, whether there's any night pain, uh, how, how long it's been there for. But those is sort of where I'd start. She tells you that the pain's there all the time and it's worse when she gets out of bed in the morning and puts her foot to the ground. 
So thinking of this, how do we examine her foot and what are we looking for specifically here? Well, when, you, if anyone, when anyone tells me their pain is immediately um, significant when they get out of bed, the first thing I think about is plantar fasciitis. And um, that, that's, um, and, and particularly patients report their pain is, is bad when they're on their feet for long periods of time. Um, it's a fairly, I mean, plantar fasciitis, again, is a, is a clinical diagnosis uh, and in general, most people um, have pain at a spot around the origin of the plantar fascia on the medial calcaneal tuberosity. Um, that some of them um, have, I've, I've noted, some of them have a flat foot. Um, I'm, I'm not sure as to whether that there's a, um, a relationship there, but. Um, Patients, um, when you examine them, I've, I've noted a lot of them have gastroc or calf contractures. Um, and um, obviously there are patient factors as well. If, if you're thinking about plantar fasciitis, um, some are slightly overweight. Um, there's a group that, that are, um, yeah, have, have perhaps a, a little bit more overweight than they would, they would hope. But, you know, it's not, it's not just those people. It's other people as well. It's... Um, you know, it can happen in young, fit and healthy people as well, athletes. Um, so, you know, there, there are a number of um, things you want to assess. Does she need an X-ray or imaging? Um, I do. Um, and I, I do, again, because it's really to rule out other conditions. I, I don't routinely um, scan um, for plantar fasciitis, as I said, with an older person, particularly for example, the case that you gave me a six-year-old, you'd want to rule out a calcaneal stress fracture. So that's um, the the other conditions actually that you see um, that could be that have some overlap in terms of symptoms or um, that do go with plantar fasciitis is something called tarsal tunnel syndrome or Baxter's nerve compression. Now, those conditions are again extremely difficult to diagnose. Um, even nerve conduction studies are extremely unreliable. Um, so um, the, the, those two, three conditions are probably the most common differentials of plantar fasciitis. Um, but again, um, with the exception of a calcaneal stress fracture, the other two are extremely difficult to diagnose. Um, if you were thinking about either of those two, because they can be concomitantly present, um, I have tended to do nerve studies and also get an MRI scan. The reason I get an MRI scan is not to diagnose plantar fasciitis, but patients with tarsal tunnel syndrome often have other changes. They might have a ganglion or a lesion in their tarsal tunnel. Um, they also, um, if you examine, if you look at their whole foot, if they have got long a long history of nerve compression, they can actually get changes in the muscles the small muscles of the foot that are innervated by those nerves as well. So that's another pointer, but again, it's extremely unreliable um, and it's often just a clinical diagnosis um, that you're making. So um, for me, um, yes, I do get an X-ray. Um, and if I'm thinking um, that there may be an element of tarsal tunnel or Baxter's nerve compression, then I get an MRI and nerve studies, but again, I emphasise to the patient that it's not—it's not a straightforward diagnosis. So, if I'm thinking plantar fasciitis, I'm thinking pa patients coming in telling me very, very specific symptoms. They're telling me 
that they've got heel pain. Um, they point to the spot over the plantar medial calcaneal tuberosity. They say my pain is terrible when I get out of bed. It's better when I when I'm resting. Um, they have a, a tight calf when I examine them. If I'm thinking there's some overlap, they're telling me, oh, it's sore all over my foot. I'm getting some burning into my foot. Um, it's just a little atypical and their pain is a little bit more broad. Um, they might complain of night pain and burning, um, but I, I'm, w w as I said, plantar fasciitis is, your patients typically, they, they tell you the diagnosis, but with, with, if I'm thinking about anything else, you know, their symptoms are not quite that, um, at least slightly atypical, shall we say. Sure. So Mrs. S is pretty typical. We examine her and she examines the way that we would expect her to. She's wanting some options for treatment. What should we be discussing with her here? Well, for me, as I say, um, I, I typically um, talk to patients about, um, you know, the duration of symptoms and, and what, the, what they want. Um, so I, I, I'm fortunate in the hospital, I, I guess, where I'm seeing patients that have already had symptoms for a year. So a lot of them are coming to me um, to discuss operative options. That's not to say that they all go for operative options, but um, we're talking about operative options. But um, in terms of non-operative options, what, what I talk to patients about are um, the importance of um, calf stretching and in particular plantar fascia-specific stretching exercises before any activity. It's been well documented and shown in the literature that plantar fascia-specific exercises do definitely help symptoms. Um, uh, there was a paper in the in the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery that looked at that, um, looked at this, and um, it's a very good paper. Um, patients who do plantar fascia-specific stretching exercises, um, their symptoms do improve significantly over a three-month period. The problem is, is that it's quite labour-intensive and no one really wants to do it. Um, every time they're sort of getting up out of bed, every time they're um, standing up after sitting for a long period of time. Um, and calf stretching also, um, we know that the gastroc is probably, um, is, is, is probably part of the pathological process, whether it's a cause or whether it's an effect. I don't, I don't entirely know, but patients with plantar fasciitis all have um, increased um, they have increased tone in the gastrocnemia. So um, if you can reduce that tone, I think it helps the symptoms. Um, and then um, obviously some patients that they want an orthotic, if they have an unusually shaped foot, such as a plantar valgus foot, um, I tend to give them an orthotic that seems to offload the origin. Um, and then there are other things such as heel cups that you can get from the chemist. Um, in terms of non-surgical, um, more um, invasive options. People have tried corticosteroid injections. Um, I don't use corticosteroid injections because um, on fellowship we had a one or two rupture, um, which I think is a bigger problem. Um, so I've not used um, corticosteroid injections. And if you do use them, they should really be put in under ultrasound guidance. Um, and then there's sort of a, a number of other injections such as PRP that is now in the literature. I don't do that. Um, I think the interventional radiologists, some of them are injecting PRP. Um, when I was in Canada, um, shockwave therapy was, was quite um, prevalent. A lot of people were using 
shockwave therapy. It's incredibly painful for the patient, though. Um, that's one thing which needs to be taken into account. So th those are sort of the non-surgical treatment options I'd be talking about. But as I said, the, um, the first things I, I sort of mentioned to the patient are the importance of gastroc and plantar fascia-specific stretching exercises, um, and, and then occasionally a night splint to keep the plantar fascia under tension. Um, so, you know, a, a dorsiflexion night splint, um, which keeps the plantar fascia under tension, tends to reduce, um, you, you know, patients' first pain in the morning when they get up out of bed. So um, that, that's where I start. If they, and then if we're talking about surgery, um, I don't do plantar fasciotomies. Um, I tend to do a gastroc lengthening, which I've found very reliable in the couple that I've done. Um, I was a little sceptical, to be honest myself, that it would help them, but both were very um, delighted with the result of surgery. So um, I, I, I try and avoid plant fasciotomy. As I said, I don't think it's a good operation. I think the biomechanical effects of plant fasciotomy are not good for the foot. So I don't, obviously, if there's a refractory case, I might consider it, but um, I, don't, I don't do that operation. So moving on now to our final case. Mrs. Kay, she's a 78-year-old woman. She is active. She walks and rides her bike. At Easter, she took her grandson on the rail trail using a traditional pedal bike. She refuses to use an electric one. She comes to you with foot pain. She is stoic and admits that she's had foot pain that has flared and settled for many years. She doesn't believe in taking medications. She finds foods, especially the nightshade vegetables, flare her pain. Over the last year, her pain is daily. It's disturbing her sleep and her quality of life. She is wondering if there is a surgical option that could help her. We're thinking osteoarthritis in this case. Sure. Um, I mean, obviously, um, depends on where she has osteoarthritis, where the problematic area is um, set in the, in the foot. Um, in general, most joints can be fused um, for, um, in terms of treatment with the exception of, you know, a couple of joints. Um, so I'd kind of be interested to know where exactly um, her pain is and which joints are involved for talking about potential options. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, it just, I guess what kind of foot, I mean, it's a big toe arthritis, midfoot, um, hindfoot, subtalar, ankle, depends on in particular what, what kind of um, arthritis, I guess that would be um, the important where it's, yeah. So she complains mainly about pain in her great toe and when we examine her it looks a little bit swollen and deformed and she's quite tender over this area what options do we have here Rupesh? Sure um, again um, we're talking specifically about um, great toe or first MTP joint arthritis or helix rigidus as we know it then um, there are a number of treatment options now um, in general I've found um, well, we should go back and start with, you know, the non-operative side of things, which um, are reasonable to, to try initially. Gen generally, I, I, if someone doesn't particularly want an operation, then I'm talking to them about some sort of insert, um, such as a Morton's extension. But I must admit, I found that a little bit unreliable. Um, and and so then we come to options with regards to to more invasive things, such as steroid injection. But again, I. I I must have been in the great toe. I, I haven't found steroid injections very reliable as well. I don't know why. Maybe because it's just a small joint. Um, and, and then, as I said, we, we come to surgery. So, um, in terms of surgery, the, 
traditionally it's always been a fusion of the big toe. Um, I mean, a fusion sounds bad, but I must admit it's a very, very reliable option and it's a very good treatment option. It's probably what I would have if I had big toe arthritis. Um, studies show that 70% of people can run after a fusion if you're running, you know, before your fusion. So it's not like you can't function with um, with a fused great toe. You might require an orthotic um, or a slightly altered shoe in order to do that. But um, in terms of reliability and um, pain, in terms of your reliability for pain relief, it's it's a great a great option. Um, in terms of other options, um, we, we now have a um, what we call a hemi replacement um, for the great toe. It's called the Cartiva, made of hydrogel, so it's the same. Um, uh, it's made of the same stuff as contact lens. Um, it, it was produced um, or initially came out of um, Canada and. Um, it, it has some reasonable uh, long-term results getting out towards 10 years now. Um, great toe replacement has always been um, something which has, in all honesty, not worked that well. Um, it, the problem is, is that we've just never been able to recreate the true biomechanics of the, the great toe. So every um, replacement that has been made um, has always been flawed in that it's, they've failed early. Um, there's been a lot of bone loss or what we call osteolysis and makes revision operations very difficult. But the new hydrogel implant, Cartiva, is perhaps um, showing some advantage over those um, historic um, implants, but still um, I, I would say it's not as reliable as the fusion. Now that um, is not, um, if you look at the Canadian and British literature that's coming out, that, um, they, they've been able to show that it's equivalent to a fusion in terms of its risk profile um, and its outcomes, but that's probably not my experience. Um, I, I think um, it is a good option, but I, I think that it, it needs to be, um, we still need probably longer data on it, um, but, but it does, but it is in New Zealand now and it is available. Um, and, you know, we are, we are using it in select patients where um, in particular they don't want a fusion. Um, as an option um, and just a little bit about how it works it, we basically see that it, it, it works as what we think is an interposition so it essentially just means that the two arthritic bony surfaces are not touching each other so um, it, it sits proud of the metatarsal head by two to three millimeters and um, and, and in essence when someone moves their toe just yeah the arthritic surfaces don't don't touch each other so um, it's not really a replacement, so to speak. It's more just an interposition spacer. Um, in terms of other treatment options, um, I, have, um, I have seen uh, on fellowship an interposition where someone's taken a tendon graft from, from another part of the, the body and then put it in the joint as a spacer. And that's similar really to how the Cartiva kind of works. It's the idea of distract the joint space um, and prevent... Um, prevent um, the bone surfaces from touching. Um, so those are sort of the more end-stage options. Um, if you're talking about early arthritis, I must admit um, we've got, uh, I mean, in terms of what we refer to as chylectomy or joint debridement, um, for very early arthritis, that, that actually works very well. Um, but, you know, in your more older 
and, and your older patients, say for the scenario you gave me, I, I think um, they're probably not looking at, at that. They're looking at, at, at more of a end stage or salvage type procedure. But um, you know, for younger people um, and for early arthritis, a, a simple joint debridement and removing the osteophytes, what we call a chylectomy, works very well. Um, and um, if you actually follow those patients, it's only about 10% of them that, that go on to need an operation within about 10 years. So, you know, that's a pretty good result. And, and, and of course, and it doesn't burn any bridges. Um, and, and that's, so that's what I will say about the, the current replacement option. So the CAR-T we talked about is that the theory behind that is that it's actually relatively bone preserving, which is why it's an advantage over the previous joint replacements that have um, that have been produced for the great toe and that um, they don't really burn any bridges. You can still come back and fuse it without without a difficult fusion, without it being a difficult fusion. Our grandmother, Mrs. K, is unsure at this stage, but she does want to know about if there's any evidence for things like glucosamine and uh, taking out the nightshades. Have you got any comments about these? We're often asked. Yep, sure. Um, so glucosamine um, is a reasonable option, but if you've got end-stage arthritis, um, I don't think it works very well at all. I mean, it really depends on the stage of arthritis, I think. Um, so if someone's, you know, that goes for any joint in the body, really. Um, you know, I, if you look at what the most common joints that we see that are arthritic, like such as the knee or hip, or probably the knee, actually, it's the most common. Um, you know, we used to get a lot of questions about glucosamine, but if you've got end-stage disease, glucosamine is not helping you. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's reasonable for early stages, but perhaps not not reasonable for late stages. So, Rapesh, thanks for talking to us today. I just wonder if you could finish off with some take-home messages for our listeners, please. Sure. Um, as I said, um, I, I, I find that a lot of the conditions that I, I see um, that, that the majority of the time you can make the diagnosis from the history um, and I think um, that that's an important part that I learned very late in my training unfortunately um, that that you know that if, if you really patients will tell you the diagnosis um, not specifically but if you ask them the right questions um, and listen to what they say I think most of the time we can diagnose what the problems are based on a history um, without actually having to examine them, although we obviously should examine them. Um, so, yeah, the importance of history is something that, that I think we all should be aware of. Fantastic. Thank you, Rupesh. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points for listening to this podcast, please fill in the Reflection of Learning form found at goodfellowunit.org. You'll also find a list of references used in this podcast and on our website. Thanks for listening. <laughs>